My name's Dan. I'm the um, co-studio head of the Chinese Room. So what I'm going to do is um, play through the, uh, the first um, section of Everybody's Gone to the Rapture. Should take about sort of like half an hour, 40 minutes. Um, as will become clear as I'm playing, I'm not going to cover all of the, the, the first part of that section. Um, it's quite a big game. The whole game actually is probably about sort of like six to seven hours to complete. But it's structured a bit like a TV miniseries where you can complete it in kind of six chapters of around 45 minutes to an hour each. And kind of what I want to focus on tonight is really talking about that relationship between games and television particularly. Because when we started conceiving of Rapture, we wanted to do two things really. We wanted to look at the very specific things that games could do with storytelling that non-interactive media couldn't. And to make something which was kind of very much about the idea of agency, about choice, about you discovering a story rather than being told a story and feeling really like you were very much at the center of that. But the other thing we wanted to do was we really wanted to raise the bar of storytelling in games. And storytelling in games has come a long way in the last few years, but we still lag significantly behind non-interactive media. And so when we were writing, directing, creating, casting, recording um, Rapture, what was really at the front of our minds was this isn't something that has to be a good game story. This has to be a story which can stand shoulder to shoulder on an equivalent quality to the very best of television, the very best of film, the very best of theatre and radio drama. And personally, I think we've achieved that. We're very lucky that we've got both the voice director, Kate Saxon, as well as some of the cast, who did an outstanding job and, for my money, turned in the best voice performances in games in this year by a considerable margin. And I can say that because I didn't do it, so it's not ego, which is a lovely position to be in. So one of the things about Rapture is the idea is behind it is that we have very, very simple gameplay. Um, and really what we're trying to do is push the player into the story as much as, as we can, as fast as possible, with as few barriers to entry as we can. So we wanted to make a game that was, didn't require a lot of mechanical skill to play, that anyone could pretty much pick up a controller, and if they could master the basics of using one stick to move, another stick to uh, look around, and they were able to tilt the controller or hit a button, they'd be able to play the game and they'd be able to get into the story. And that was really, really important to us. So that was kind of like where we were aiming for on a mechanical point of view. In terms of the story, we were really inspired by wanting to do something that was a kind of an end-of-the-world drama, which are very, very common in games, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's loads of games which deal with apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic scenarios, but they tend to be very, very grey, very, very dirty, involve an awful lot of shotguns and rocket launchers. And we wanted to do something that was very quintessentially British. We wanted to draw on the kind of the amazing tradition of apocalyptic drama that we have in this country, people like John Wyndham, John Christopher, um, and back to sort of like stuff in the, in the 50s, like Charles Eric Main, also looking at kind of like Christopher Priest's work, um, drawing in other kind of writers like Margaret Atwood, and that very literary kind of form of the apocalypse. And to do that, we wanted to do it by focusing on something that was very, very character-driven. So um, what we wanted to do is create an environment and a community. And that was the fundamental baseline of the game. If we can create an environment and a community that's believable, that people invest in emotionally, then the story will kind of tell itself. And rather than being something that's about you go from point A to point B and you hit lever C and you shoot mutant A or whatever it is, actually all we're asking you to do as a player is to care about what you, what you experience and who you meet along the way. We kind of, uh, we find ourselves on the outskirts of the village of Yorton, which is where the story takes place. Now all you know when you've started this game is that everybody's gone. And that's it, that's all we put the player in with. Something has happened, the population has vanished, and really you, are somewhere between an archaeologist and a detective in terms of trying to figure out what's gone on and, and how the story unfolds. But really, it's not 
It's a game about the end of the world, but it's not really a game about the end of the world. It's a game about people and what people do when they're placed in crisis or in extreme situations. It's one of the major ways you can find story in the game. You can go up to any device, radios, TVs, computers, phones, pick them up, engage them, and you'll hear some stories, something that's been caught, a moment that's been caught as the end of the world happened within it. And you get this gradual introduction to the characters. There's no visualization of any of the characters that are in there. And what we we're really interested in was drawing from sort of, both from radio dramas, but also that thing you get from novelizations where when films are made of novels and there's that weird kind of disappointing thing that can happen when you see a character and you think that's not who they are because you had a much clearer picture in your head of who they were and we really wanted to work with that in Rapture so when we were making these scenes a few things that are really kind of like different in the way in which we handled scenes in, in Rapture compared to other games the first one is is that still in 2015 which is quite surprising the way that most games handle story particularly if they're trying to make you emotionally invest in the story is they break you out of the action the moment the story happens and we're still in this on-off situation where you have a bit of gameplay and then it stops and you get control taken away from you and then a scene plays out that's basically animated cinema and then you go back and then you play the game again and we didn't want to do that we wanted to have a seamless unbroken experience with no cutscenes. so you don't have a situation where you play for a bit and then some stories fed to you. It's up to you whether or not you find the story. It's up to you whether or not you stay for that scene. At any point, you can move around wherever you want. You can frame it. You can be the director. So you can actually set those shots depending on sort of like how you're feeling the scene's going. You can go and explore the details around the scene if you're interested. There's often corroborating visual details around the scene which will give you more information about what you're hearing. Probably kind of sometimes counterbalance what you're hearing. But you have this idea of this very, very rich world. But the other really important thing about it is, is that you can walk away at any point. That these characters will continue having that scene, that conversation, that relationship, whether you stay to listen to them or not. So the choice is up to you. It's your discovery whether you do it. And that was really interesting from a writing and from a performance direction point of view. Because if we weren't forcing the player to stop and listen to any scene, it meant that our job was to inspire a player to listen. To make it interesting enough and engaging enough that a player would go, I am going to sit still and listen to this, even though I know I could walk away at any point. And that was a huge risk, a really, really big risk that generally games don't take. If they've got something emotional, particularly something small or intimate to, to convey to you, they stop you from being able to move while you're doing it or they give you a skip button, which is the biggest cop-out in the, in the book. So that was a major risk in Rapture. It was something that was really, really quite different. So alongside the, uh, the acting, a major part of Rapture that we really, really focused on was sound as well. Um, it's something that as a company we've always been heavily invested in, helped by the fact that uh, Jess's co-studio head is, is our composer as well, so it kind of pushes music right to the centre of what we do. It sounds like no other game. It really draws on that incredible kind of like pastoral English tradition. And I think it's absolutely fundamental in the way in which the, uh, the, the game world draws you in and supports it. There's some very, very clever audio stuff happening in this game. Generally in this game, there's a lot of very, very clever stuff happening very, very subtly, which is one of those really weird, frustrating things when it comes out and everyone goes, it's quite a simple game. And you think, you have no idea how complicated this game is. Underneath that very placid surface, is just this huge kind of like mess of um, clockwork gears and code, very, very finely balanced, banging up against each other. And one of those is the way in which the audio works. So in Rapture, there's no loops, which is really, really unusual for a game. Most games have an ambient loop going in the background, you have a bit of bird song on a loop, maybe a bit of looped music going in there. Particularly if it's an RPG, you have your nice exploration loops, which goes, ah, and then the orc comes out and he goes, dum 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 like that. Rapture doesn't do any of those things. What Rapture does instead is the music and the audio systems work together semi-procedurally. So there's a whole bass 
kind of bin of sounds that are going on in this space. And they're constantly being pulled out and recombined by a little algorithm. So it means that when you're actually exploring this space, the sound is constant, constantly evolving. It never loops back on itself. It never remains the same. And that system is not just drawing in foley from the environment. It's also drawing in fragments of dialogue that you might hear and come across. If you uncover a scene, words from that scene get broken up and then put back into the dialogue again. The music kind of emerges back out of it. The, um, the audio system is tuned to the music cues, so it'll gradually move up and down the keys until it finds the point of synchronization with the next music cue. So it flows up and into it. And so you get this very, very, very seamless, kind of like very fluid. Um, we kind of thought of it like floating down a river that you buff it from side to side, but you're never actually hitting an edge. You've never got any sharp boundaries in anything. And that really helps with immersion. It really helps the player get completely kind of like sucked into this world. And the important thing about it is, is because it doesn't demand your attention, it means that when we're actually dealing with very, very intimate, very quiet subject matter, we can get away with that because we're not forcing the player out of it all the time. I just want to sort of like do a quick um, paying tribute to our art team who were unbelievably good. First of all, to James Watts, whose effects, those visualizations of the characters so subtle, so beautiful, and really did that thing of just giving enough of a suggestion of the human for you to be able to put your own imagination on them to understand who these characters are. And also to our environment art team, who invested a huge amount of time and effort in not just creating something that was visually beautiful, but creating something that had a real emotional depth and weight to it, that understood these are not just spaces, these are people's homes. These are not just balls of light, these are people. These are histories, these are emotions, these are relationships. And fundamentally, that was what was at the core of the game, that Really, nothing matters if that doesn't work. It can be as pretty as anything, it can be as polished as anything and sound as beautiful as it likes. But if you don't support that emotional core, if you don't sell this community and understand that these people cared about each other and loved and died and it had meaning, then the whole game falls down. Not having any traditional game mechanics both makes that very exposed, but it also is unbelievably liberating. Because we didn't have to go, this bedroom's great, but I can't get around by that chest of drawers because I've got to get there because there's a grenade launcher at the back of it I've got to get. And if I can ricochet something off the walls and I've got to do this and do this, and how's the AI going to work? Actually, it let us just tell a story. And that was amazing because it really meant that everyone that was involved in the production through the, the art team, Adam Hay, our audio designer, right down to kind of like the coders that were working on it, Stu and Martin, we're all able to just go, what story do we tell here? How do we make the player care about these people? How do we put in these little details that make you go, Barbara, I know that name. So when we might hear Barbara later on, we've already got this information, we're constantly feeding forwards. So we're drawing on that best of kind of like foreshadowing that you get in, in as, like I said, in kind of film and TV. And the biggest writing challenge we had in this is how do we actually make this drama still have weight even though a player can go anywhere at any given point and can discover scenes completely out of order. From the moment you're in this, there's no gating. There's an optimised route through it that you're likely to take, but the player can go anywhere at any point. What's really interesting about this is that Stephen, particularly as a character, is a really kind of classic, very British anti-hero, that all the way through the story is set up as being selfish, self-obsessed, he's aggressive, he sets other characters up, he's, he's cold as ice, and he does some really, really awful things. If you happen to find a couple of scenes later on, you understand why he's doing it all. And suddenly he's not. Suddenly he's a desperate person. He's the closest thing to a hero in a game. But only if you find those scenes. But if you find those scenes first, it'll change the way you feel about Stephen for the entire rest of the game. And that's really interesting to me because that's just games. We're the only medium that can do that. You can't do that in a film. You can't choose to go, right, well, if you watch this scene now, that's going to change how you feel about character X for the next 90 minutes. 
unless you're actually skipping over scenes. But we can do that. We can say, if you happen to go to this place, you know more about these people than if you didn't. It's funny, when the game came out and um, we were getting reviews, which were amazing, it was really lovely to get them, one thing that came up quite a lot, particularly in reviews in um, uh, uh, British reviewers, was they kept saying, that's like the Archers. And um, what was really funny is that some of them would go, it's like the Archers, that's a good thing. And some of them would go, ah, it's like the Archers. And um, to me, I'm really proud that we made something which is like the Archers, because I think it's unbelievably difficult to make soap opera, incredibly hard, and it's not recognised as being incredibly hard often enough. We see it as this kind of like a low form of TV, and it's not. It's one of the hardest things to do. It helps that Jess's mum was a soap writer, so I have a huge amount of respect for it. What to me is really interesting about this is ostensibly this is a game about the end of the world, right? And we're going, what happened? How did the world end? But actually, for me, that's, that's the least interesting thing about it. We find out all this massive amount of very subtle small character information, and that's what is pushing us through this game world. Rather than going, I have to find a solution, the end of the world is a problem to be solved, what we're actually doing is saying, I want to know what happened to these people because I care about them. And the great thing about having an ensemble cast, and the terrific thing about having an ensemble cast that are also good, is that there will be people that you identify with, but you don't have to identify with everyone. And again, that's something which is particularly with TV drama and TV miniseries, and the kind of things that we were kind of getting inspiration from and playing this, I mean, things like, uh, say, Friday Night Lights or Bloodlines, or it, obviously this year for me, the sort of TV highlight of the year has to be Dr. Foster, which did an unbelievable job of making you care about characters, even though actually very little happened in it. We can identify with those domestic, intimate moments of the relationship, and that's what puts everything in a frame and gives everything meaning. Being able to flip foreshadowing on its head and kind of like work backwards from things is a really, really interesting, dramatic um, thing to be doing. And obviously, you know, in kind of like film, you have things like Memento, which do it incredibly well. And that was definitely kind of a bit of an inspiration in the way in which we could handle story in this, of going, we don't have to follow a path of going one after the other, after the other, after the other. And one of the things which we can really, really work on, and it was an absolute assumption that we made when we were developing the game and when I was writing the story, was that we fundamentally work from the basis that players are smart and they can handle it and they'll be able to piece things together, and they love a puzzle, and they love a challenge, and they're into it, and they'll work it out. And it's amazing how many games still work on the basis that players are the opposite of that. And again, something that you know, we tend to find in games is because it's a, you know, it is intrinsically an interactive medium, there's a kind of a pressure to do and to move all the time. And if you're not doing and moving, then there's a problem. And that's okay if it's like a puzzle game, because you're doing in your head, and you're thinking, and this kind of stuff. But since we first started, since we made Dear Esther back in, in, since the mod was 2007, a lot of that was predicated on the idea of going, it's okay to stop and think and feel. And if you don't let the player stop and think and feel, it's incapable, you can't reach those emotional places. Because you can't have a deep emotional response if you're constantly stimulated, or if there's a constant call to action, or you're having to mechanically do stuff. So, we kind of learned that through Esther and through Machine for Pigs. And with Rapture, I guess in a way it was very much our uh, encapsulated where we'd been, the journey we'd been on in the studio of going, sometimes it's okay just to stop and listen and feel and to be in that space, that amazing sense of wonder that you get in games of being there. And just saying, I can just be there and listen to this and feel this situation which is going on. And again, that's where we were very, very lucky in terms of the, the calibre of performances which were delivered in the game. Because if they weren't absolutely world-class, there was no way this was going to work. If the music wasn't absolutely world-class, it wouldn't work. If the visuals weren't world-class, it wouldn't work. So the kind of like the liberation on one side and the pressure on the other was a really, really interesting balancing act. But it was, it was an amazing thing to be part of, to be able to say, no, we don't have to have anything else. Just what's there is enough.
and trust that it would be something that would, would hold a player's attention. To find a balance between something which could lead you around a space, which could make sure that because it's a huge open world, it's all just one giant world and you can go anywhere, there's the possibility you can get lost. And I think, again, kind of credit to Andrew that anyone that sort of knows game design will know how difficult signposting is, letting the player subtly know where to go next without forcing them down corridors. And in a linear game, that's incredibly difficult. In an open world game, it's unbelievably difficult. Just angling that signpost or that bush just a fraction more to this direction suggests this path more strongly than that path. How do we balance an entire open world, feeding a player around it without them getting lost, but allowing them to get lost at the same time? And the moats were kind of designed to do that. They were designed to find the space interesting. So fundamentally, if you were lost, you could look out for them and they'd take you to the interesting places in the game. But they wouldn't lead you there, and they wouldn't be a mechanic that would go, you must follow this from point to point to get to places. They'd exist in the world independently of you, and they'd find things interesting. They'd stop and explore places. They'd move on. And finding that balance between something which expressed a sense of self and fulfilled a gameplay function was unbelievably tough. And I think, for me anyway, artificial intelligence is, is the single hardest area of game design. It's, it's just brutally hard to get right. And again, I can say this because it's not my work, so I feel able to say it. I think few games capture a sense of place and time and emotion the way that Rapture does. And I think that's not just testament to the kind of like the skill and the ability of everyone, or the whole team that worked on it. And that's not just kind of like, ah, oh, it's not just um, the kind of like the composition, it's not just the design, it's the actors, it's the musicians, it's the programmers, it's the engineers, it's a huge number of people that committed to this. Everyone committed to it with such passion and such love and such kind of real commitment to what we were trying to do and really trusted that if we all loved it and if we all trusted in the notion of it being okay to be quiet and to be still in a game, that we could make something really, really special. And I genuinely, I'm, I'm very proud of what we made and I think we have made something very special. Yeah, I think we'll, uh, we'll end it there and go into the Q&A, thank you. Just before I open it up to the floor, I've got a few questions uh, to ask myself, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, it's interesting seeing it played through with this fantastic cinema system. Uh, the music really does come into its own at this point, like it, it really comes down, so it compounds the experience. Um, did Jessica work with a kind of motif or a theme at the centre of it all? They all kind of expanded around, or is there a different kind of motif for each area? Um, so there's, uh, there's six themes, one for each character. So when, she, when Jess started off doing the music, we went through quite a lot of early iterations. At one point we had a... Uh, a kind of an 80s synth version of it, like it was kind of like Tomorrow Children or the Tripods, like a real meow, meow, meow kind of Jean-Michel Jarre thing. And um, that kind of didn't, it, it was great and it really situated it, but it didn't really have a great sort of emotional depth. So she, she, she looked at the kind of like an English folk traditions and particularly the English choral tradition. And she sings in the choir as well. So it's very much into this idea of the human voice being at the center mm -hmm. of this and the importance of having a human voice at the heart of the game as well. Um, and once she started working like that, then very quickly she kind of like came to this idea of saying that every character should have like a psalm or a piece which summed them up, which was their song. We just heard Wendy's going into the woods there. And as we kind of like learn about Wendy as a character, the lyrics of that and the way that the music is, excuse me, composed for that, tells us a great deal. It kind of really encapsulates Wendy's character. And it's really nice, almost like a musical, the idea of an overture for that character before you reach their area. So it ended up with six themes, one for each character. And then what's really, really clever about the music is that when you meet those characters out of their arcs, so if there is a scene with Wendy, say, in the village, which is Jeremy's kind of story, 
when Wendy's in a scene, Wendy's theme will subtly drift into the music as well. So it's always kind of reinforcing the character that's there. And particularly with Stephen's theme is, is probably the most recognisable theme in it. It's got a very, very, very strong structure to it. That by the end of it, you start kind of understanding these are Stephen's moments as you start hearing this stuff go on. And then what was even cleverer about it is then sometimes you'd use it without the character being there. So you'd get a hint of Stephen in a scene that Stephen wasn't even present in, which I think is really, really like incredibly clever. So yeah, it was, it was really very, very character driven. And because she worked very closely on the script with me, did an awful lot of editing, um, was very, very actively involved in, in script development as well, it meant that she probably knew the characters better than anybody else. Mm -hmm. So when we first started making the game, I said, my well, part of my brief to Jess was, I want you to be able to play it without a single voiceover in it and still understand these people and still understand what happened. And I think that's a nightmare brief for a composer, <laughs> but I think she really sort of pulled it off in what she did. Absolutely. It's interesting to hear you say both psalm and overture, both words that you wouldn't really hear. I don't think too much in game development. So using those as a kind of through line uh, for the narrative. Yeah, well, I think it was, I mean, again, partially because we didn't have mechanics in the game in sort of like traditional sense. So you had a lot of space that clears out. The moment you stop going, we don't have ballistics, we don't have AI, we don't have puzzles you create a lot of space mm -hmm. that you can then use for other things. You can use for drama, which is great. Um, but if you're going to do that, then you have to go out and say, well, if we're interested in drama and character and emotion and kind of like through lines of, of thought and feeling, then you have to be looking outside games for those things. Because those things traditionally we're very, very bad at doing in games. Mm -hmm. um, but they're things which other art forms are extremely good at doing. So you kind of go to those art forms and try and like learn from them as much as you can. And that means sort of like you do kind of like take on some of the, the language that's used in those and kind of say, well, we are talking about mise-en-scene, we are talking about cinematography, we're talking about overtures. Um, and it kind of, it's, it's a nice counterbalance to the very, very technical language you're using sort of every day in terms of development as well. That, you know, you can be talking about sort of like, you know, frame rate and lodding and, and kind of like poly counts and stuff like that. But fundamentally, they become tools to serve the drama. Absolutely. And it, it just helps keep those things in check. It's very easy to get caught up in a, a kind of a performance arms race where because you're desperately trying to crank every frame a second you can out, you're trying to get rid of aliasing, you're trying to get rid of all these things, of trying to constantly keep yourself rooted back and going, it can be as technically perfect as you like. If people don't care, it's irrelevant. Absolutely. You mentioned drama there as well. It's another thing. How did you initially intend for this game to be digested? Was it meant for a one kind of sit-through playthrough, or was it kind of do you expect it as episodes? Well, it initially started the very the very first prototype of the game was that it was the the concept was it was locked for sixty minutes, and it started with the world ends in sixty minutes. What are you going to do? Mm. Um, and so the whole thing was done on a timer, and the idea was is that every sixty minutes you'd go into a new area with a new character, and you'd have sixty minutes to try and tell their story, and the problem we got with that really, really quickly was that the kind of metaphor we got to the analogy is that you're reading a novel and you're really, really into it and you get about three quarters of the way through and then suddenly the page is blank and you look through it and all the rest of the pages are blank and on the very last page it just says, ha ha, you didn't read fast enough, which seemed like a really bad way of doing drama. So we kind of ripped all that out and said, actually what really matters is that we have a game that is competitive, that, that, a, that a player can just play for as long as or as short as they can dip in and out of. You have these little chunks because not everyone wants to play for seven hours, eight hours on the trot. Um, they can play for an hour, and that's a really, really good length of time. And then at the end of it, you've got a really clear break in the chapters Absolutely. where you can come out of it and go back in. Um, and it was kind of a challenge because it's kind of pure story-driven games like, like Dear Esther and um, Gone Home, um, Ethan Carter, I guess, to an extent. They've always been about 90 minutes long. 
Um, and they've always been linear, and they've always been corridors, and they've always been you walk along a corridor and the story falls into place in front of you. And that was seen as the way in which you could do that. And Rapture kind of completely ripped those rules up and went, no, it's going to be six hours long and it's going to be open world, which is much longer than it's supposed to, you're supposed to be able to hold people's attention for. And open world is, is just making something non-linear. Even open world games aren't non-linear. They're, they're threads of linear action in a non-linear world. So it was kind of, it was kind of quite horribly ambitious, I guess, in that <laughs> sense. Um, but that was where the fun of it came from as well, of going, you know, well, this is, this is how to tell a story that you can't tell in another medium. So we have to embrace it fully, or there's just no point in doing it. True, celebrates that form as well, I think. Yeah, Absolutely. I think so, yeah. Um, any questions from the audience at all? Why and how is the game incredibly beautiful? <laughs> <laughs> okay, superficially, and I say this very, very carefully because superficially takes a vast amount of effort, the game is beautiful in terms of how it looks. It looks like a painting. It doesn't resort to the normal game traditions of how you get wow factor. Um, and I think visually it does an exceptionally good job of marrying large and small. So very, very small intimate details, character details, place the larger kind of more impressive vistas in a context, which I think is quite difficult to do. Um, and technically, getting that amount of world into one level as one thing which doesn't have load screens and getting it to run at that frame rate with that kind of fidelity is an unbelievably tough technical challenge. Um, and the production values throughout are exceptional. They're really, that was really, really important to us. I think why it's really beautiful though on the deeper level is because I think, and I kind of say this off the back of kind of like player reactions as well, because people cared. And that's where the beauty comes from. It's not necessarily, it certainly helps that you have these incredible production values. But again, that's useless if people don't care. And you can have games which are quite low fidelity, which manage that trick of actually making you really care about what's going on. And we really wanted to try and communicate that in the story, that I guess the kind of the underlying sense of the story was not that the world ended, but that everything ends, right? Everybody ends. But you find beauty in a life well lived. And it's about seeing that beauty and even the most small kind of mundane things. So we wanted to have situations where you'd be in the game where you'd come across into a garden and the washing would be blowing and a butterfly would happen to move past as the music happened to catch you, as you happened to be thinking about why Lizzie might love Stephen at that point. And that collision of that emotional undercurrent and the, the kind of supporting production values on the surface, I think that's why it's beautiful to me because it's not just pretty, it means something. And it feels real, it feels like a place. And that was the, the best thing, when, when the game launched, I think the, the thing which I was most proud of in terms of people's responses were people were saying, I know this place and I know these people. I've grown up with them, I've walked these streets, I've had conversations with them. That's really special and that's, that's I think, is where, that's why the game's beautiful to me. Um, I think it's absolutely astounding, full stop. Um, how difficult was it pitching this into uh, a global publisher like Sony? Um, because it is very distinctly British and that is part of its appeal. Like every single bit of detail nobody could have made if you hadn't been a team located in Britain. And you know, I'm, I'm interested in A, how it's done globally in terms of its appeal globally, but also then the process of pitching it into to, to someone like Sony. How difficult or not was that? Did they? 
you know, how many changes did they want to make? Did they think that this would be globally successful and appealing? I think we were lucky because we'd made, um, when we first approached Sony, we were coming off the back of Dear Esther, which had done unbelievably well, I mean, far better than we ever thought it was going to do. And at that point, you know, kind of it, was, it was like a quarter of a million sales. So we had a profile and a bankability as a studio. And that, you know, it counts for something, it matters, because they are fundamentally, you know, the, the, they're looking at a bottom line and saying, is this worth the investment we're going to put in it? That stood us in our favour. There was very good timing in terms of it was the launch of a new console. So there was a race to have innovative content on the console. And not every game that was being produced was being bankrolled on the basis that it would return large, invest, large amounts of money. We, they wanted to break even. They wanted to do well. But it wasn't being pitched in the same kind of like way that a Borderlands would be or, or something like that, which is about kind of like generating money from that. So they were willing to take a risk on a game which was very unusual and was always going to be fundamentally pretty niche on the basis that they believed in us as developers and we'd proved as developers that we were capable of doing that stuff. But it also fell very neatly in the, in the console life cycle. And I think now we're kind of, we're past that initial first wave. Consoles have been out a little while. Um, I don't know if Rapture would fly with a global publisher then because it's very, very risky and because if you've already got those innovative titles on your platform, then you're also you're looking at different things, your strategy changes. But you know, fundamentally, it was, it, it was a relationship of trust. And actually, they, they were very hands-off. Um, they did let us get on with it for a, for a large proportion of the time. Um, and they'd always come through and say, look, we don't think this is working, or can you justify this? But there was a lot of um, kind of like respect for that in there. I think it was, um, yeah. I mean. You always have situations when you have a very small company working with a very big company. They don't always gel. And there were points of friction, of course there were. But I think any developer would say that about any publisher, and any publisher would say that about any developer. But by and large, it was just, I guess, a, a kind of a, um, the stars were in the right place. And you kind of have to know as a, as a business that you try and make your own luck a little bit, but you're also aware of where outside kind of forces are kind of like lining up with you. And I guess part of the skill if you're trying to do something and you're trying to focus on the artistic quality of it, is understanding where those kind of trajectories are heading exterior and going, right, well, if we do this, we can hit that and we don't have to make any compromise to the art we want to make, but we can still make this make sense in a kind of global market. But that's hard. I mean, that's a whole skill in itself, I think. And how was it received in America at being so kind of quintessentially English? Really, really well. So, I mean, um, as, as for the figures that we have, it was, it was equal sales between America and Europe, which we expected the sales to be slanted more towards Europe than America, um, even with the sort of the size of the American market being bigger. But no, it seems to have, um, certainly critically, there was no, um, no division or change between um, American reviews and, and European reviews. And we didn't know how that would go. We didn't know how, how it would go there. The one thing we found which is really interesting is that um, the American market Certainly our publishers hated Stephen with a passion <laughs> that I have not known. And like British and European reviewers go, yeah, he's an anti-hero, he's a troubled guy, but he's doing his best. Americans were like, no, he's scumbag, he's an arsehole. <laughs> Straight away, flat like that. Our producer, get him onto the subject of Stephen. He could ramp for like 15 minutes at a time about how much he hated him. And that was the only thing really that kind of like would really sort of, apart from that. But I guess we, we kind of said as well that you kind of trust it. Like we all play games set in worlds that we don't know all the time. And if the world is realized with the attention to detail and with an internal logic, it doesn't matter that we don't know it. 
it's when we're presented with worlds that don't add up, that kind of like basically treat you as a player as too stupid to notice that they've just wallpapered over a few cracks and they haven't bothered doing any of the groundwork. That's when the fiction falls down. Um, but if the fiction is, is cared about enough, it shouldn't matter who's making it and where it comes from and where it's at, I don't think. Absolutely. Um, and it's really good that you're doing something in Europe because I'm tired of seeing American games set in America. <laughs> um, I have a question about, it's more about the kind of the play, because I haven't played the game and I want to play it now, uh, about the linear, linearity um, of the radio. So you had the radio, that was Kate's story. Um, was that linear? As so, in like that was, you know, whatever you find it would play the next? No, it wasn't. It was positioned. So okay, it was... Yeah. Um, it was broadly linear in that so you've got these, you've got the five major areas and then the sixth area, which is Kate's story, which is kind of slightly separate. Yeah. And within each area, which is kind of a hub area and it's non-linear and there's a kind of an optimal path that if you just kind of let the game flow, then you'll probably follow this path and you'll probably encounter scenes in roughly this kind of order. But the radios were grouped according to the locations. There's like... There's batch one of Kate's story, batch two, batch three, batch four, batch five, batch six. But in the hub areas, no, it's completely non-linear. So that was a really interesting kind of design challenge in terms of balancing out between writing and design of going, well, we want to be able, the player to be able to get some sense of forward momentum in this story, especially because it's done as monologue rather than sing. But if we start doing it so wherever you go, it'll just pick up the next scene in order and play it to you, then we lose something in that. Not only that players will get wise to that very quickly, but also, like for me, writing for games, the thing which I love about writing for games is that there's a real risk in there that is really unpredictable. You don't know what the player's going to do. In fact, the only thing you know is that the player will do what you don't expect them to do, which means you can either try and create these really elaborate architectures that force the player into these kind of like shapes and stuff to make sure they don't screw with your story, or you can go, we have to kind of relax and go, players are smart, they'll piece it together, they'll figure it out in their own way. And some of those accidental collisions are what makes it a really special experience for you as a player when you, you get something and you put it together. And because it's not necessarily designed to absolutely hit in that way, you get an incredible sense of ownership of those moments. And it really gives it a, a kind of an energy, I think, that's very, very, very exciting. So we try to, yeah, there's a few, there's, there's I suppose the kind of the end of arc bits are a kind of a, a bit of a gate. And right at the end of the game, you can't get into the fifth, into the sixth, the final chapter without completing the fifth final chapter. That's really the only bottleneck in the whole game. Apart from that, it's all open. Just another, another question based off that. Um, was that it, this is, to me, it looks like this should be one or two night playthrough. You know, you play through two or three hours and another two hours. I often find I get half an hour, an hour to play and I forget things quickly. Is there any, can you replay the scenes by visiting the? The locations again, or no, you can't. What happens if you forget the story or the characters' names? Yeah, this was this was a really really big discussion actually because we we, we wanted to we had a lot of talk about should you be able to revisit scenes, and those kind of questions. What happens if you go back? Well, how do you recap on things? And the trade-off that we felt with that 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 felt like it wasn't worth making was you'd lose a sense of the vulnerability of the world. That if these things only happen once and they're gone there's something really precious about that. That if you go, I didn't quite make that out, or hang on a minute, didn't that mean, and it's gone, and it's gone forever. And it kind of, I think, made one, it, on a mechanical level, it made you more likely to stay and watch the scenes and to pay attention to them because you wouldn't get it again. But it also, like I say, I kind of, it added a kind of a frailty to it. If these people are gone, they're dead, it's all over. And if you're not there at that moment, 
it's gone forever. And there was something which seemed to, I guess, synchronise with the actual story that was being told there that felt right. But it's one of those real interesting ones where you kind of have these kind of like practical kind of like UI and player experience things on one hand, and then you go, yeah, but to protect the fiction on the other. And I think in all of those cases, and there are cases in it where I think where the design is slightly flawed or compromised, but it's done to protect the fiction, and I would make that decision every single time. And we've had, you know, stick for that in our previous games of sacrificing design for the, for the fiction. But I'd always do it, regardless anyway, I don't care. I think that's the, the absolute thing. You start sacrificing the fiction, you might as well not bother with the rest of it. Hello, I want to talk to you about um, interactivity and immersion. Um, I found with the game that often I'd find myself just walking around the village because it was just so beautiful and it did remind me of where I grew up and it, it felt very living and breathing. And one of my favourite moments was just running backwards and forwards through, I think it was Wendy's Cottage washing and just having that material float back and forth. I thought that was so beautiful. And then when you're in like the, um, the playground area, they could, you found like tennis rackets and balls and things. And I found myself just wanting to be able to pick these things up and interact with them as I went along with the story. Um, at any point in the development, was there more interactivity in the village? Yes, and um, it's a technical issue. I think the moment you allow so at the moment those things have physics, performance takes a hit. And the moment they have physics, it means you've got to work out the collision on every single possible object. Um, you've got to then work out things like if the player can stand on the ball, they can get to places they can't get to otherwise. If they can take running parkours off something. We had a, a point when we first were playing around with sprint functions where we'd have parkour modes who could get on the roof of a house by sort of like running at a bench, getting off the bench onto something. You could kind of work your way around. So all of those kind of things. Again, it's that sort of trade-off of going, it would be lovely to be able to pick every object up. And early on, we were like, OK, you should be able to pick objects up. You should be able to rotate them. There should be moments of storytelling detail on those that you can see. The only way that would have worked is by making the world smaller or by cutting it up into pieces. And we felt like the idea of having, once it's loaded once, you're just in it and it's fully seamless, was better for the sense of immersion and flow than the thing of being able to pick up objects and manipulate them. But it really is. I mean, that's the kind of stuff where it's, it's you've got a, a technical barrier. And I think when we sort of, as we got further and further into the development, it became, I'm going to look at, at Rich particularly, who had to do all the, the lodding on all the art assets in this, of making sure that they simplified enough details you went away. And, and Alex as well, and James, in fact, everybody. It kind of, um, as we went further and further through development, it became clearer and clearer just how crazily ambitious we were being. And actually that point of when you go through the full 90%, then you're into the last 10, 10% sort of of polish, and you're going, actually, we've stacked up this vast amount of content. And by the end of it, we were literally just like crowbarring it into the engine to try and make the thing not fall over. And it was a really difficult decision. And we were doing things like saying, OK, we've got to cut the teddy bear from that bedroom because it's that or the game runs at 27 frames a second in that space. <laughs> and you've got these really sort of heartbreaking decisions of going, yeah, one less piece of graffiti over there, one less light bulb working in that room. We can no longer go into this house because that's doing it too much. So many more of the houses were open in the village. We couldn't afford to, to, to stock those up with stuff. And it's just it's game development. It's just that constant kind of trade-off. Um, I think <clears throat> it is particularly looking at games like other games that have come out this year, like, like Soma and Frictional Games are amazing at that kind of like tactile, pick it up, Absolutely. put it down, move things around. And I am a little bit jealous of those. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, I love Frictional's work. 
it only goes so far. There's only so many times I can do this and it's interesting before I go, yeah, it's another ball. And it's more better to save that power to be able to tell the story. But it's trade-offs, you know. I think that's all we've got time for tonight. So um, thank you guys very much for your time. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, one more round of applause for Dan. Thank you.